a long time ago was showing symptoms of a sinus infection. So I went to my doctor. My doctor was old school. The way he diagnosed sinus infections was by taking an x-ray of your face. Probably not good for you, but effective nonetheless. So he sends me down to the radiology lab. I get an x-ray. I come back to his office. I'm waiting, 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 as you tend to do in a doctor's office. He comes in. He says, well, you definitely have a sinus infection. But he has my x-rays in his hands. He holds them up to the light, and he says, you see these spaces in your head. He said, those are normal. Everybody has those, uh, but yours are abnormally large, which means there might be a brain tumor in there. He said, so I want to send you back down to the radiology lab, get a CAT scan, uh, then you can go home. We'll call you back when they have the results. You know, in a moment like that, you're only asking one question. What is going to happen? All of us are always asking that question. You agree to go on a date. The expectations are high. You're excited about it. You show up to the date. That's the question that you're asking. What is going to happen? You welcome a new baby into your home. You've never been responsible for a life before. What is going to happen? You're engaged to be married. The wedding's coming up in a few days. You're thinking about the immensity of the vows that you're getting ready to take till death do us part. And at the same time, you know that a lot of marriages end in divorce. What, what is going to happen? Standing at a cemetery over the grave of someone you just buried who you love very much. What is going to happen? Every soul on earth is asking that question all the time. Add on top of that, that we have committed our lives to Jesus and therefore have committed to glorify Jesus through our lives on this earth. Leaves us with the question, how can I have unwavering faith with an uncertain future? Faith can be high when certainty is high. That's easy. Anyone can do that. But how can I have unwavering faith and an uncertain future? There are four statements that have been changing the game for me personally recently. They all come from Psalm 23. I think they'll be helpful to you. You can pull out your listening guide. You can see them recorded there. Number one, the Lord is my shepherd. I have what I need. The Lord is my shepherd. I will not be afraid. The Lord is my shepherd. I overcome my enemy. The Lord is my shepherd. I have a future. This is what David wrote in Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The Lord is my shepherd. I have what I need. He says in verse one, remember, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Before David, who we know wrote this psalm based on the introduction, before he became a king, he was a shepherd. Shepherds know that sheep need two things. They need food and they need water. So when he writes, he makes me lie down in green pastures and he leads me beside still waters, we think of that as a serenity psalm. It is the spa of the Bibles. 
We can almost picture a rolling meadow filled with green grass, a babbling brook, someone playing on a harp and handing you a pair of slippers (laughs) right before you get a massage. But David isn't talking about serenity. He's talking about what the sheep need. He's talking about provision because sheep are grazers. They're not like camels. They can't just eat and eat and eat for a day and store up for three months. They need to eat every day. They need to have something to drink every day. Remember what Jesus told us when he was teaching us how to pray in Matthew chapter six. Give us this day our daily bread. If we could make requests from God about bread, we would ask for monthly bread. We would ask for yearly bread. But he's giving out daily bread and that's what he teaches us to ask for. It would be better if we could look over and see a storehouse filled with a month's worth of bread. But he gives us daily bread. The Bible tells us through the Spirit of God, not to worry. Worry gets into the mix when you and I want security ahead of God's schedule. So you're sending your first child off to kindergarten. We're sending our first child off to middle school this year. How will they stack up against other kids academically, athletically? Will they fit in? These are all the things that you're asking, but you can't know the future, so we worry. Will this diagnosis end up with cancer, heart disease, surgery? We don't get to know the future, so we worry. Will I always be single? Will I ever have a spouse? Will I have a family of my own? These are the answers that we want, but we can't know the future, so instead we worry. We want future answers, but God is giving daily answers So in the meantime, we fill the gap with worry, anxiety, and fear. See, the reason that we would like to look over and see a month's worth of bread in a storehouse is because then we would have confidence. We would know, I at least have what I need for a month, or even better, six months, or even better than that, a year from now. But what God wants from all of us is to not look over at what we have to give us confidence, but for the sheep to look over at the shepherd and have confidence. That's why it says the Lord is my shepherd. I have what I need. Second thing, the Lord is my shepherd. I will not be afraid. Verse four, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The Lord is my shepherd. I will not be afraid. Is that even possible? David thought that it was. Fear is a predator and we are its prey and often it overtakes us. David is writing an image of someone standing at the entrance of a canyon, a valley, dark and treacherous. And he's wondering, are there lions in there to attack the sheep, bears, wolves? Are there potential robbers to take the flock? It says, even in the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Now, the, reason, the, the question that I have to ask first is, why does there have to be a valley at all? Wouldn't it be great if God just waved his hand and said, no more valleys with the shadow of death? Why does there have to be a valley at all? Because of two people in the Garden of Eden 
in Genesis chapter 3 and because of 7 billion people on planet Earth in 2017. That is why there is a valley of the shadow of death. God created the heavens and the earth and he called it good. He created the Garden of Eden and he called it good. He created Adam and Eve and he called them good. But they were tempted by the serpent. They reached for fruit that God had forbade. And when they made that choice, they made a choice for all of us. Sin entered into the world. It broke us on the inside and it broke the way the world operates. And we've been making that choice ourselves every day since. So sin is at work in me. Sin is at work around me. Sin is at work through me. We hate one another. We hurt one another. We oppress one another. The world is broken. That's why the psalmist says that there is a valley of the shadow of death. But he looks over and he sees something that gives him comfort. The rod and the staff of the shepherd. Now, what does God use that rod for? Does he use it to love tap the sheep back into the flock? Does he use it to fight off threats, robbers, wolves? The answer is both. He does both. He does use it to guide us back into the flock because when uncertainty is high, insecurity is high, and you and I, we act out. When those two things are high, we make choices that we wouldn't normally make. And so he takes his rod and he gently nudges us back towards the flock. That's why the book of Hebrews says that you and I, we shouldn't despise or lose heart when God disciplines us because it's a sign that he loves us. He disciplines those that he loves. But he does use his rod and staff to fight off our enemies and our threats. I mean, that's what the story of David and Goliath is all about. If you go back and read it in 1 Samuel, David is not putting any trust in his ability to sling a sling. He's not putting any hope or confidence in those stones that he pulled out of the river before he went to meet Goliath. He puts all of his trust in God who he believes will protect him, even though he's going to battle against this nine-foot giant with an army behind the giant, all alone. He puts all of his confidence in God, who will protect him. God, who will vindicate his own name because Goliath is breathing blasphemous threats against God's people. And that's what happens. That's why David defeats Goliath, not because David had stones, but because David had a God with a rod and a staff. And he fought off the threats. Your rod and staff, they comfort me. You know, being in a valley of the shadow of death, it's hard to understand. Again, we wish that there were no valleys. We spent the last week at the beach in Florida, just our crew, the five of us, along with my family from Missouri. We find ourselves at this beach in Florida along the Gulf Coast at least once a year. We really, really love it. Uh, It's a long drive, but it's a straight drive from Houston down I-10 all the way to Florida. But right in the middle or close to the middle is Mobile, Alabama. And no disrespect for many of you who are from Mobile, but Mobile is awful and Satan lives there, or at least he has a vacation home there. Because in Mobile, God bless it, is a tunnel. And so you can drive 85 miles an hour all the way from Houston to Mobile, but guaranteed, no matter what time of the day it is, when you go through that tunnel, you will go down to five miles an hour, if not putting your car in park on the middle of the freeway. It doesn't matter whether you're going or coming, there's always traffic there. And every time that I'm parked in the middle of the interstate in Mobile, Alabama, I ask myself, why do we come this way? 
is I could go to Siri and I could ask her for a different route. I mean, she won't understand what I'm saying, of course, but theoretically, <laughs> I could do that. I could go to Google Maps. I could reach out to fellow Wazers and ask them for a different <laughs> route. But you don't do that because if you did that, what you would find out is there is no long way around. I mean, there is a long way around, but it's not a quicker way around. It's actually faster to just go through that tunnel. And why do I do it year after year? Because it's in between two places that I love, Houston and that beach. See, when we're taking our turn in the valley of the shadow of death, it feels like we move in all of our stuff with us. It feels like we make camp there. That's what it feels like. I'm gonna be here forever. But the truth is, is David says, when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, the valley is just what's in between one green pasture and another green pasture. God is not asking you to live in that valley. He says you're gonna walk through it. But it feels alone when it's our turn to walk through it. It's lonely, feels like no one is with us, but that's the great promise of the Psalms. I will fear no evil for you are with me. Most of us are under the impression that God stands with us at the entrance of the valley, looks down the corridor of it with all of its darkness and treachery, says, I'll see you on the other side. But he doesn't, he walks through the valley with us. The Lord is my shepherd, I will not be afraid. Number three, the Lord is my shepherd, I overcome my enemy. Verse five, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. <coughs> David is talking about a banquet and they're having a good time. Their cups are overflowing. The table is set. His head has been anointed with oil, which is the way that you would welcome a guest. All signs actually point to David being the guest of honor at a banquet that God has prepared. When we think through some of the stories of David, that makes total sense. When you think about him having the faith to fight off a giant named Goliath, when you think about David wasn't of royal lineage, he was just a normal person like you and I, but God saw him, saw something in him, sovereignly chose him, lifted him up above the crowd, said, you are going to be a king for my people. When you read the Psalms of David, you can see this close and personal connection between he and God, something we envy. It makes total sense that he would be the guest of honor at a banquet that God prepared. But David has other stories. Like you and I, his life is a mix of faithfulness and unfaithfulness. Did you know that he committed adultery? That was after having decided to take on multiple wives. Did you know that he killed the husband of his adulteress? Do you know that he disobeyed God out of carelessness? Disobeyed God out of pride? When you think about those things, it doesn't make sense that David would be a guest of honor at a banquet that God prepared. Remember the story that Jesus told in Luke chapter 15 of the prodigal son? A young man goes to his father and says, I want my inheritance early. Essentially saying to the father, I want a relationship with your money, but I do not want a relationship with you. So the father gives it to him and then he goes off to a faraway country, squanders it, wastes it. And once all his money is gone, his friends disappear. He has to get a job. The only job that he can find 
is feeding pigs and he's so hungry, starving to death, he wished that he could eat what the pigs were eating. Jesus said in the story that he comes to his senses and he decides that he needs to return home. He knows he can't go home as a son because he's burned that bridge, but maybe his father will let him come home as a servant. So he heads home and he prepares a speech. Father, I've sinned against heaven and earth and you. Uh, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Just make me one of your hired servants. I know I can't live in the house, but maybe I can live in the servants' quarters. And you remember what the story says, that when the father sees him, the father runs to him and hugs him and starts kissing his face. He's so excited that he's back. And he yells to his servants, go and get the coat and go and get the rings and start preparing because we're gonna throw a party and my son who was lost and found, who was dead and now is alive, is gonna be the guest of honor. You know, we're like the son because we evaluate ourselves. We evaluate the things that we've done and then we decide where we should sit around God's table. I've not done a good job. I've not been reading the scripture. I've not been praying. Honestly, I've not even been thinking about Jesus all week long. We've been sleeping together. We've just, I just, my life is a mess. So if I even get invited to the table, I have to sit as far away as possible. Or we do the opposite and we go, yeah, I mean, honestly, I'm kicking butt spiritually right now. <laughs> like I'm dominating it. I... Like, read my Bible so much, it's unbelievable. And, like, my life is one constant prayer, just an unending stream of prayer. Follows me everywhere. Then we compare ourselves to somebody else. We're like, I thought, I mean, I knew that I was awesome. Now I am, like, amazing and awesome together. Just call me double A batteries for Jesus. That's what I am, amazing and awesome. And I deserve to sit at the head of the table. I mean, I'm not saying that like I should be the guest of honor because probably Jesus should ultimately be that person, but it's like Jesus and like right next to him is me. <laughs> we evaluate ourselves and then we decide where we sit at the table. And depending on how you feel about yourself in that moment, your seating chart changes. But what we learn from David's life and the Psalm that he wrote is where you sit at the table has very little to do with you and has everything to do with God. He decides. And he decided that David was gonna be the guest of honor. And look who's at the banquet watching, his enemies. Now, a question that you and I have to ask this morning is how many enemies do you have? I mentioned that we were in Florida this week at the beach People like to do different things at the beach. Some people like to get in the water. Some people like to boogie board. Some people like to surf. I like to play in the sand like a four-year-old. <laughs> I like to build stuff. So Friday, two days ago, I decided that I was gonna build the fort to end all sand forts. And so I immediately started digging, started implementing my plan. I paid my children to help me because a worker is worthy of their wages. That's what the Bible says, and I want to do what the Bible says. So, I mean, it was cheap labor, I'm not going to lie. And so I'm building, and I feel really great about what I'm building. But I look over, and the, the group right next to us, there is another man building his own thing. Have you guys ever taken those personality tests, the strength finders? I took one, and one of the strengths is competition. And that's my number one strength. 
which is actually a weakness, so even my strengths are weaknesses. <laughs> and so that brokenness kicks in in me Friday, and I think to myself, I'm going to dominate you so hardcore <laughs> on Fort Building. I mean, he doesn't know it, because this is just what I'm thinking on the inside, but I'm, I just, my goal at that moment was to totally shame him in front of his children and like I had to remember, like this guy's like probably like super nice and loves the poor and serves people and is kind. And like all I can think about is how I have to be so much better than him. You know, so depending on what day it is, my list of enemies can be pretty long, unfortunately. The scripture gives us room for one enemy in this world. Satan. God's enemy because Satan made himself out to be God's enemy. And he hates you and is at work in your life and around your life and through your life to do three things, to tempt you, to trick you, and trap you. He will settle for nothing less than your total destruction in every way, spiritually, physically, emotionally. That is his goal. It's what he thinks about all the time. It's what he wakes up to do in the morning. It's to bring you down. Revelation chapter 19 tells us that Psalm 23 is gonna be fulfilled one day because Revelation, speaking about a future event, says we're gonna be a part of a massive party in the kingdom of God. It refers to it as the wedding supper of the lamb. We're not gonna be the guests of honor. Jesus is gonna be the only focal point that day, but we get to be there. Immediately, in the next chapter of Revelation, after it talks about this party that you and I are gonna get to be a part of, where the angels are singing because of how amazing this party is gonna be, right in the next chapter is the fall and the ultimate destruction of that great enemy, Satan. Jesus will defeat him once and for all. There it is, in our future, a banquet that our enemy has to watch and then his destruction in the next chapter. What that tells us today is you and I are victors and we don't have to be victims of his temptations, his tricks, or his traps. Because the Lord is our shepherd, we overcome our enemy. And finally, the Lord is my shepherd, I have a future. Which is what you wanna know when the doctor says it might be a tumor or when you lose someone that you love or a relationship fails or you're standing at the brink of a big decision. Do I have a future? And David says that we do. Verse six, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So you can know a couple of things about your future. First, goodness and mercy will be your companions in your future. A year from now, five years from now, 10 years from now, you'll be able to turn around and you will be able to tell a story of the goodness of God in your life and the mercy of God in your life. It may not seem like that right now because the shadow in the valley can be really dark, but goodness and mercy are your companions, not shadows and darkness. And we'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now, Bible scholars tell us that word dwell is the way you and I would talk about our home. We dwell in our home. We come and go, but it is home base. It's the place that we remember who we are. It's the place that we find rest. It's the place that we find restoration. 
He said, we're going to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Depending on your view of heaven, you may be like, well, honestly, forever sounds like a long time because what you've pictured is being grounded to your room in heaven for the rest of your life. Jesus talked about this same idea in John chapter 14. He said in verse one, let not your hearts be troubled. He's speaking to his disciples, people like us. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Jesus is using wedding language here. If you were getting married in the first century in Israel, it was a two-part process. If you looked across your little village and you saw a cute girl, you said, maybe I'm interested in spending the rest of my life with her. You wouldn't go over and flirt with her. You'd go to your dad. It's kind of awkward. And you tell your dad. Then your dad would go and tell her dad. So now it's like double awkward because the future in-laws are involved before you've even connected with your future spouse. And the families get together and there's a family decision about whether or not this marriage is going to happen. But goodness and mercy are your companions in your future. And so there's an agreement. This marriage is going to happen. And there in the meeting, as a family unit, you make a decision and you set a date. It's three months from now. It's six months from now. It's a year from now. Step one, the betrothal. Step two, the wedding ceremony. In between those two things, the groom would go and prepare a home for his new family. But he wouldn't survey property in the village. He would go to his father and he would say, Father, do you have any room on your property for me to build a house, a space for my future family? Father would say, yes, you can build right next to me or you could build right next to your brother's family or your sister's family. And so over time, there would be mom and dad's house and the brother's house, sister's house, and you have this family dwelling, sharing a common courtyard. So when Jesus talks about going to prepare a place for us, this is what he's talking about, in his father's house. Now, somewhere in the translation from Latin to English, the word mansions got thrown in. And that's what many of us have believed, that I go to prepare a mansion for you. And most of us, honestly, are kind of looking forward to that because we know we're not gonna get to live in a mansion here. So the thought of having some swag in heaven, you know, is pretty, is pretty good. So sorry to disappoint you, this point you the truth is is you're gonna have a really awesome apartment in heaven (laughs) but the good news is is you're gonna share a courtyard with the father he's not giving you a piece of property down the road in a different county a different state a different country Jesus said no I'm going to add a place for you in my father's house so that where I am you will be which is good news to most of us because the way most of us think about our future in heaven and in the kingdom of God is like we are the guest of a guest of a guest of a guest 
that one of our friends got invited and then they invited another one of their friends and that friend invited another friend and that friend invited me, but maybe I'm gonna show up at the party and the person who's hosting the party is gonna be like, I don't even know you and they're gonna have to introduce themselves and it's gonna be weird because they didn't invite me, but I'm here with such and such and I just feel awkward. Most of us feel awkward about our future with God in heaven, but what Jesus promised his disciples is, listen, I'm going away and I know that's heartbreaking and it is hard, isn't it? It's hard to live here as a follower of Jesus and to not be able to see him. It feels foolish sometimes. It feels foolish to say, I'm going to spend my days living for someone I can't see. And Jesus said to his disciples, I know it's going to be hard for me to go away, but listen, while I'm away, this is what I'm doing for you. I'm thinking about you and I'm preparing for you so that when you get here, I am ready for you. You are not the friend of a 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 friend who got invited somewhere along the way. I'm ready. You've got your space. And I didn't send you down the street. You're right here with me. You have a future. If you're single and you don't want to be single, you have a future. If you're sick and you don't want to be sick, you have a future. If your marriage is on ice and you wished it was on fire, you have a future. If you feel like your best days are somehow behind you already, you have a future. If you're staring down the barrel of death, you have a future because the Lord is your shepherd. How do we know that he can keep these promises? Because he's not just a shepherd, he's a good shepherd. That's what Jesus said about himself in John chapter 10, verse 11. I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So making sure you have what you need is not hard for him. Making sure that you have the confidence that you need is not hard for him. Making sure that you overcome your enemy is not hard for him because he was willing to lay down his life for you. The shepherd died on a cross in place of the sheep. You and I deserve the death penalty because of our sin that we inherited from Adam and Eve and have willingly participated in ever since. But the shepherd says, no, I'll step in for the sheep because I love the sheep and they're my sheep and they're my flock and I'm responsible for them. So I'll take the blows and I'll take the death so they can live. He's a good shepherd. We have what we need. We will not be afraid. We will overcome and we have a bright future. Let's pray. It's right there where you are. You just ask God directly, God, what is it that you're specifically saying to me? What is it that you want me to immediately put into practice? God, I pray that that word that you just breathed into our hearts applying your scripture would just become like steel in our bones and we would fight for it we'd hold on to it we would see it 
need you. Lead us, guide us. We are your sheep. You are our shepherd. We know you're going to lead us in a path of righteousness for your name's sake. So in your name we pray. Amen. Why don't you stand to your feet?